Well, kind of at the very end of a series that we've called Better Life, and so I'm going to ask if you would just pray with me. Father, thank you for these words that we read in Hebrews as we come to this very last chapter. We ask that you would use some of, I pray, touch our heart at some point as we hear your word. Use your word to either encourage or correct or in some way call us into a greater depth of relationship with you. Thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as a new parent, leaving your infant with a babysitter for the first time can be rather nerve-wracking. Brian and Amy Elliott were new parents who experienced that nerve-wracking kind of occasion. Because Brian recalls, Amy and I were terrified for much of the nine months prior to giving birth. And they had read, you know, some of the, the, the guidebooks for parenting and felt like they just didn't really help them completely, fully, especially for this moment. So when their son, um, when their son Jack, this infant, uh, their first uh, babysitter experience, when that was coming up, uh, the babysitter requested if there were just some special instructions that she might need to know about in order to care for their little infant. And so Amy asked Dad, Brian, you know, go ahead, write up some of those instructions and send it to the babysitter. Well, Brian's a software engineer, and he said, I, I thought I'd apply the if-then approach of operating manuals to the many, many messy, messy surprises that come for when you're caring for a baby. And as an engineer, I thought, just the idea of looking at an infant as a device, you know, like a Tamagotchi, one of those handheld digital pets, he said, I thought that might be helpful for the babysitter. And I, I have no idea. I, I'm guessing this babysitter has, has, has seen babies before. But anyway, he says, I write a lot of technical documentation for work, so that's the direction I kind of fell into. The instructions as they go through it, and, and if you were to, to look on it, because um, later, after a few years, when Jack was now four and he had actually survived, she found it, sent it to him, and then he sent it to Reddit Parenting, and it's just full of kind of these if-then, this is what you got to do kind of stuff. And, and, and a few of the things, the instructions range from how to use a pacifier, which is shove it in his mouth, nothing to it, to dirty diaper identification tactics, which is poop will have a distinct smell, carefully open the back and look for signs, to what to do if the baby actually poops through his diaper. He writes, if it's trivial, carefully remove his outfit. If it's an epic war zone... Carefully cut his outfit off using a blunt nose scissors. And at one point, recognizing that babies can be somewhat socially awkward, you know, because they just kind of look at you and you don't know what they're thinking, and, and, and then you're trying to kind of entertain them. And say, so he, he at one point um, went ahead and he, and he wrote it, part of that instructions is called interaction. Here's what you do. He, and, and there's a whole part dedicated to how you socially interact with the baby. Things such as tummy time, dancing, music, and he goes through this whole rift of stuff. Luckily, their son made it, and the babysitter did okay. And all I can say is, thank God for moms, right? This morning, we're going to look at some of the final, really the final chapter of Hebrews. It's Hebrews 13, and we've been looking at chapters 1 through 12, and we 
We'll look today at some practical instructions. It's kind of um, put right at the end of those 12 chapters where he's been talking throughout about a better life. And, And his whole point is to a group of people who had begun to walk with God through Jesus, had a relationship with Jesus. They were Hebrew people who were beginning to go back to the Old Testament faith. So he goes on and he says, I want you to realize what what you had in the Old Testament. All the stuff in the Old Testament were like arrows pointing towards a greater reality to come who is going to come in Jesus. So I want you to know, and he goes through this whole thing chapter after chapter, there's a better messenger, there's a better message, there's a better brother, there's a better advocate. He talks about the fact that Jesus allows us to move into a better rest, a better hope, a better promise, a better sacrifice, faith, character, and last week we talked about a better kingdom and we don't usually talk about kingdoms but kingdoms are realms in which you live and and that's one of the reasons like the United States is kind of a kingdom if you want to look at it that way although we don't have a king um, uh, we we have this realm where people kind of want to come because they like the benefits and the the things that happen and so um, he's saying in Jesus he brings the kingdom of God this God who is full of grace and mercy and yet full of truth and holiness And so as we get to this, chapter 1 through 12 is the central message. It's kind of a thesis treatise that he writes about this better life. And now we come to chapter 13. And chapter 13 is like an appendix to the whole thing. And he begins in chapter 13, verse 1, with this general instruction, and then goes into some practical ones. And the general instruction over all it is, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. It, it, it's like mom giving instructions, you know. Now, we're going to be leaving. We want you guys to love each other, care for, be you know, kind, and then gives a bunch of instructions. Well, that's what this does. It, it basically says, love like a family. And then goes into these practical ones. But what I want to do is look at verses 22 through 25, because that's kind of the very ending of it. And we're going to look very quickly at it, because as you get to the end of it, and this is just for some people who want to you know, know a little bit more about this book. Verse 22 says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will... Come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Now that sounds very typically like Paul, the apostle, writing, which I believe it probably was. And and as I said earlier in this message of this book of Hebrews, I don't believe 1 through 12 was written by Paul. I believe this was kind of added to it to give this this sense of uh, of credibility. In fact, in, in that day when a letter was written, it would be much like ours. It would be written on a scroll, but as the last part of the scroll, if you look at it, just like on an envelope, it would have who it's to and it would have this return address and then have just a brief sentence about what it is probably what happened whether it was accidental or whether it was intentional that part of the scroll was lost very early on and the church doesn't know who wrote it but I'm my thoughts and opinion as we kind of look at this is that Paul probably this added this little postscript that we just read to that letter as a way of, in chapter 13, I think he even wrote all 13, as a way of saying, I want you to understand what this person has written is credible, is right, and he gives authority to it. It's almost as if a a vice president sends out a memo to everybody, and and the CEO puts a little attachment to it, so you all kind of go, oh, this is important. We better not take this lightly. And so that's kind of what you get. So you come to the very end, and that's how it ends. And so I shared with you the kind of the ending. And he says, for I've written you quite briefly, I think that's kind of a, a misnomer because this letter is, Hebrews, is not a short letter. 
there are, the average length of the New Testament letters are about 3,000 words. This letter to Hebrews is over 7,000 words. There's only two other books that are close to it in size, and that's Romans and 1 Corinthians. And so it is this kind of sense that Paul writes this little thing, and he says, I wrote you briefly, but here, when I'm putting to this, I want you to know and to read and to follow and to examine. And as a result, I want to challenge you to look at your faith in Jesus. So let's look at these instructions, which I think from chapter 13, verses 1 on, are written from Paul's hand, and he does what he typically does, and he says, I want you to love one another. I want you to love one another. And the very first thing he says is live generously. If you look at verse 2, the verse says, Do not forget to show hospitality strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You see, in that day, and still today, throughout the Middle East, and, and especially in, in Islamic countries, um, hospitality is a very, very important thing. I was talking to someone the other day who was traveling through um, some Muslim countries, and they were just talking about how well they were loved and cared for in some of these places. Because in the Middle East, especially in the day when, when, when this letter was being written, they didn't have hotels, they didn't have restaurants, they didn't have fueling stations. Like, you don't pull up with your donkey and just say, you know, give me some, some food. Um, or, or go to the local restaurant and find a McDonald's or some other, you know, kind of better food maybe. Um, you don't, I'm sorry if you weren't, you know, anyway. And so then, and you don't go, there weren't inns. If there were an inn in a large city, they were usually in a, a place of disrepute. And so it was incumbent on people to open their lives to one another. It was incumbent to, to open their hearts, and not only their hearts, but to open their hands and be generous and take care of people when they would be traveling through. So the word that became basically the word for this hospitality in the Greek actually means love of strangers, which doesn't mean you're to love strange people necessarily, although it may include that. But it's the idea that you're to love those who are different from you, who in a sense are outside your circle of friendship. It means to live in such a way that when there's someone who is new or someone who has a need that you see, open your heart and open your life. Basically, he's saying make space for another person with a need and invite them and open them your heart and your life and, and, and bring them in and help them at that time. And so in verse 2, he, he, even, he kind of gives a little, um, here's a little motivation why you might want to do it, because you may just entertain an angel. Now, I, I know of people who have had those experiences where, you know, you get done, you go, was that an angel? In, in the Old Testament, Abraham actually did that in Genesis. So did Gideon at one point in the book of Judges. So did Manoah in the book of Judges. So there's these instances, and he's saying there are sometimes, you may not even be aware of it, that God may even be bringing someone along for some specific reason, and you may actually be entertaining a being that's not a human being. Now, let me put it this way. I don't think he's saying go around and be hospitable because it just might turn out the person that you're serving is an angel. I think the reason he puts that in there is because he's trying to motivate you to say, you just never know what kind of blessing is at the end of this. You have any, any idea that when you begin to open your heart and you maybe share something with someone and you meet a need, you have no idea what that could lead to or what is going on in the other person's life and what it can mean in your own life. I was um, in my freshman year in college. 
Had a great time um, in my freshman year. Got to know some people. I was um, getting excited to get ready for the sophomore year. When you come to the end of the year, you, you, you pick a roommate. Now, when you come in as a freshman, in this college specifically, you got to sign someone, so it wasn't a big deal. But when you come to that point where you're picking roommates, some people, I didn't realize it, but it was a real struggle to find out who am I going to room with. Well, I had picked my roommate, and we had figured out we wanted to be in a certain dorm. We were hoping that we could get there, and we're trying to manage towards that. When one day, someone came down the hall, someone I knew from um, back in my high school days. We weren't real close. We grew up in the same city. But that person came to me. And, and, and he was on my floor, and I knew he didn't necessarily have a lot of friends, and he came up to me and he said, could I room with you? And he, my first instinct was, no way. Not that he's such a terrible, but we were just a little bit different. I didn't know him real well. He was real bright and all this other stuff, and I'm going, you know. And, uh, and some, I said, you know, let me think about it. I came back and I said, Yes. And I asked, I asked my other roommate, and he said yes, so we were going to end up getting a room where there would be three people, which was also not that great of a situation. But I'm not sure why I said yes, but I am so glad that I did. Because today that person is one of my closest friends. We were together as college buddies just a few weeks ago, and we were sitting around this fire, and we were talking and his friend looked at me in the eyes and with tears in his eyes said, you don't know what your yes to me meant in opening up a relational world and a whole bunch of other stuff that to this day I am so grateful for. So I, I, I want us to look at this word of scripture and to recognize this is, you can't do this for everyone, but pay attention when the Spirit of God begins to prompt your heart. You may have someone at, at where you work who's come in, who's new, and you've got your circle of friends, and you go, I just don't have a lot of space or time. But if the Spirit of God is prompting your heart, pay attention to it. You have no idea what that might lead to. And it's not about getting. It's truly about being like Jesus. And sometimes there's this reward. So this meet the needs that are around you that are obvious that you can see. But he also goes on and he, he says this as well. He says that um, not only do you do that, but there's this idea that um, when you continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and, and those who are mistreated as if you were yourself suffering with them. That's the third, second part of it. He says there are not only needs that are around you that you need to open your eyes to, but there are needs that are hidden. There are some of those who are in prison. There are shut-ins. There are people who may be you know, widows or widowers. Are there some needs out there you just need to be mindful of and keep you know, in your record book? Maybe once a month you write down that person's name. You say, you know, I'm going to just send them a note. I'm going to send them a card. I'm going to do something to let them know that they're loved and they're cared for. I'm going to open up some space in my life, maybe in my own a book of uh, calendar, and just say I'm going to regularly, continually meet the need that they may have. You know, there's needs all around us. Do you, every, this is kind of an interesting thing. Every 31 seconds, an immigrant comes to the Twin Cities. Do you know that? So grateful because in our church, there's a group of people who have been working with Awaken Ministries, and Awaken is a ministry that works with refugees. And we took one in a family last October, and, and, and that's been exciting. If you, you have a heart for that, there are needs, there are places you can actually touch lives. So here's the second thing I want you to think about. And this is what he says. He says, keep your lives holy and pure. This is verse 4. 
as he goes on. Now, last week, if you know, a number of you weren't here last week, but at one point he says, I want you to do two things. I want you to live like Jesus. And one of the ways that you live like Jesus is not only living at peace with one another, but he said you also live a holy and pure life. Well, he kind of reiterates what was said there. And last week, they gave the example of Esau. Talked about sexual immorality, and then it also said about Esau, and it talks about Esau. And Esau was a guy in the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, Esau was the guy who had inheritance rights, he had birthrights, and because he was so hungry one day, he came in, and in his hunger was famished, and he made a deal that he would sell his birthright for a stew. Now, first of all, stew can't be that good. But the point was that there are sometimes in our life, there are some what I would call undisciplined desires that lead to undesirable outcomes. We make choices, and our choices have consequences. So he kind of continues here, and he says in verse 4, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually, and all the sexually immoral. And his point is the same thing here. There are undisciplined desires that can lead to undesired outcomes. I want you to invest your love. You made a commitment to one another in marriage. And I say this to some of you couples, especially on Mother's Day, especially to dads. You made a commitment to love, to love that person, to do good to that person, to look for ways to um, share your life with them. He says, continue to do so. But if you look at the next part that he goes on, not only love your spouse well, he adds keep the marriage bed pure. And you may think, well, what's, you know, the marriage bed in that day was just a way of speaking about sex. It'd be similar to someone saying, it's really not much different than saying, you know, he went to bed with her. Now, we're not thinking that she went, you know, they went to sleep. Right? And so he says, keep the marriage bed pure. That's his, and so the word of God is really clear on this. He, he makes this point. Here's an encouragement. He says, if you really want to love one another, you don't let your desires, um, especially a sexual desire, which is so potent, so powerful. You notice how it got quiet in here? Even the kids are listening. No. Sex is to be within marriage. It's something to be shared after two people have made commitments to one another. He's making this very clear. Not before. And once married, it's to remain within that bond of commitment. Now, you might be thinking this is difficult, but this was difficult in the day this was given. In that day and age, in the first century, this was in, an incredibly unreasonable demand, a lot of them would think. I mean, this desire was so strong, what did it hurt? Why be so constrictive? Why, why be so puritanical? And, and, and today, we can kind of go, yeah, we have the pill, we have other things, so we don't even have the same problems they may have had then. But I want you to understand, when the Bible speaks about this, especially if you can go look sometime at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, around verse 13, Paul makes a very important point here. And I, I, want, I want you to hear this. Because it's become... In our culture, sex is just a physical thing. But God designed sex, and he did so in such a way, catch this, that he designed it to fire the addictively good hormone oxytocin. So that when two people come together, a spiritual bonding actually takes place. 
The Bible never considers sex as some kind of benefits friends share, like you, you know how you share Netflix accounts. Because God knows he created that trust, acceptance, and deep bonding of two souls occur through healthy sex. Now catch this. I was, I was reading this. American researchers have uncovered what goes on in a person's head during sex. The scientists from Rutgers University, New Jersey, used scans to monitor brains during sex and found that different brain parts are activated when various parts of the body are aroused. A key hormone released during sex is oxytocin, also known, as some of you know, as a cuddle hormone. This lowers our defenses and makes us trust people more, says the research analysis. It's also the key to bonding as it increases levels of empathy. Now catch this, women produce more of this hormone, although it's not clear why. This is scientific stuff, I'm not talking about the Bible. And this means they are more likely to get, let their guard down and fall in love with a man after sex. However, the study goes on and says, the problem is that the body can't distinguish whether the person we're with is a casual fling or a marriage material. Oxytocin is released either way. So while it may help you bond with the love of your life, it also is the very same reason you may be miserable when a sh- short-term relationship ends. It's also the reason, they says, there is such heartbreak in relational fractures. Now the interesting thing about this is that men, the, the pleasure hormone that they secrete is, is more dopamine, which is highly addictive. So I often have conversations, I meet with younger guys and, and I talk about the fact, they say, you know, even if the Bible says not to do it, there's even a bigger, deeper reason. It's, do you really love that person? Especially guys with women. Because you know what's going on, you're creating a bond that when it happens, it tears. Because the idea is this, in 1 Corinthians it says it like this, it is when, when, this, when this exchange occurs, when this intercourse of relationship occurs, it is like super glue of two souls. And when those souls are together and they're ripped apart, you lose part of your soul. Now, I don't mean you lose it forever, but that's the imagery. And that's why so often, like when we do some of these prayer ministries, other, we often are praying for this very thing that has occurred in people's lives. And Paul isn't some kind of old-fashioned person saying, don't do it because he was... In his day, in the same way in our day, it wasn't a popular message. Because sex outside the design, the intended purpose of God, is damaging. During my senior year, when I was at college, a friend of mine uh, was working in an office late at night, was shot twice, and she was raped. And I remember afterwards, do you know that the wounds to her body through the, sh- through the shooting healed? Uh, the trauma of that and the healing of that happened within a year rather quickly. Do you know that for years she struggled with the trauma of the rape because something penetrates so much more deeply than a bullet flesh wound? And so Paul is just making this point. Folks, if you really want to live in love, live beyond what your immediate desires are. Keep that kind of thing in a place where it can be safe, where it's used as intended, where what is to be done is to, to, to bond souls together. We have a course that we've been giving in, in, in using here in our church called Awaken Love. 
And it, it is both for men and women. So far, we've really just done it for women at this point. And there's been about 40 that have gone through. And, and Beth, who is one of our pastoral counselors on staff, has told me it has had just such impact for women around this whole area of sexuality because there's so much pain and so much hurt. And so he says this. Live your lives, keep your lives holy and pure. And then he goes on and he moves to another area of desires that get out of hand. And in verse 5 and 6, he basically makes the point, I want you to enjoy what you have. You have a love that can get out of desire in a romantic and a relational way, but you also have a love that can get out of desire where you begin to use people as means to an end. So he makes a statement, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. And here's the part, and be content with what you have. Wow, that's a message really hard in our day and age, isn't it? Everything you get in the radio, everything you see on TV, everything you see in magazines, everything you hear from friends around you, houses that look in the same neighborhood of yours, you name it. Everything is pushing you to get the bigger house, the better, newer car. You want to get the the more exotic vacation experience or whatever it is because everything is, if we just had this, then we'd be satisfied. And he goes, no, I would love for you to kind of look at your life and recognize this, that, that, that God has said that he is with you and he won't forsake you In him, he will bring fulfillment and he will bring about those things in his time if you follow and pursue him and not the love. Money isn't the problem. It's the love of, the lust after that. So he just makes this statement, practical construction, you want to love people, just enjoy what you have. And he goes on, he says in verse 6, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. Uh, What mortal men can do to me, in a sense, is nothing. See, it's our love for money that gets in the way of our actually having good friendships and relationships. I have a a guy who um, is in one of my guys' small groups, and he was sharing the other day that with their newborn child, they had come to a place where it was just getting really difficult, and they were deciding whether maybe she might stay home for some years just to be with him and, and, and leave the job she has in order to maybe do some freelancing and things like that, which is a big decision because you are losing some stated income. And a person was sharing they're going to be losing some income, which meant they realized they're making a choice that says no to possibly a car they wanted sooner to the fact that they're making this choice and they're trying to be obedient to how the prompting of the God was working in their life. And when they kind of stepped back, he told me this, which was interesting. He said, you know what's really interesting? We, we, we traded, in a sense, our wealth arrangement for a relational kind of investment. He said, I didn't realize, you know, now that she's working home and we've made some of these choices and we know there'll be some tough choices to come, it's amazing how much room there is in our life for more friends to come and to be a part of our life. It's amazing how much more we're able to be relationally connected to some people. And it's amazing how enriching that tends to be. He says, say it with confidence. God's with you. He will help you. He will provide. And I'm, I'm, I'm giving that as an example, not because that's what I think should happen. I have no problem with double income. That's uh, just fine. What I'm saying it is be careful that your desire and love for doesn't get in the way of some other things that God might want in your life. And then focus on good examples. Verses 7 and 8. 
Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And just want to point out a couple things here. He'll say leaders about three times in the next number of verses. And and this word for leader could mean a military leader, a political leader, a business leader. It could mean a religious leader. But what it's qualified by here is it's really a spiritual leader. It's a person that you looked up to. And as you looked up to them, they spoke into your life. They spoke um, into your life that in a way that it, it nourished you to want to know God and follow God. And, and you looked at their life and you were able to kind of look and see what has happened over the course of time. The word outcome could actually refer back to Hebrews 11 where it talks about people who have died in the faith and you look at their life. But it could be just someone who has tested time and you look at it and you go, man, I just am impressed with how God worked in their life. For he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His point is that Jesus doesn't change. He still works today like he did yesterday. Like he worked in, in that person's life who is a leader who spoke into your heart spiritually. Just how he worked then, he'll work today and he'll work in the future. So I just want you to think for a second. I'm going to ask you to kind of just take a mental note right now, okay? And ask yourself, as you think about it, who has God used to spiritually touch your life that, that somehow awakens some things in you that has made a difference and, and, fo- and caused you to follow him? Now think about that for a second. Are, are there some people that you look at and go, but that was a person who spoke into my life as a leader. And I ask you to think this question. Are you pursuing Jesus like those whose life's touched and formed you? Are you imitating their life? Maybe it's around um, letting the word of God come into your heart. It's, it's consistently meeting with a few other people and saying, I'm going to meet with some people in order that these people will speak into my spiritual life. It could be this whole concept of living with purity. You've just let that, that slide. And then I ask you are, you, are you investing in someone else yourself? Are you... Moving into this point in your life where you as a leader should be taking what God has done in your life and speaking God's word into them. The next thing he moves to is in verses 9 through 16 is a longer section where he starts talking about being centered on God's grace. He kind of is encapsulating a bit of what was said in 1 through 12 of the chapters in Hebrews. He says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. That's kind of the thing you want to underline there. Not by a bunch of rules and a bunch of things you try and do. Not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. He's basically saying we come right into the presence of God. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. This is the idea. This outside the camp is a very uh, important uh, idea in the Old Testament. Again, it was a symbol pointing to a greater reality. And the idea was that they would bring their sins before um, God and, and God would forgive them as they brought this sacrifice. And that animal would be burned outside the camp in a symbolic way of saying, your sin is now outside. It's no longer. It is as far as the east is from the west, which you think about it. Those two never meet, right? 
You live, and it's so far removed from you. And he's making this point. I want you to live in grace. I don't want you to live trying to think that somehow if you can just do enough and you can just get enough and be smart enough and, and, and know enough about the Bible and, and do enough kind of giving and attend church enough. It's not about the things that you do that makes you acceptable before God. Living in the grace of God, living in his presence, is merely the result of what he has done for you. So enjoy it. He's forgiven you of your sin. Stay centered on God's grace. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For he, here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We don't live just for this life, folks. We live for a life yet to come. Our sin has been taken by Christ. It's given us a new orientation of where our heart is directed. And so he says, never forget the gospel. It is the good news of what God has done for you. It is a gift, not something earned. Grace is all about God's love for you. So live in that. And then he goes on and he says, and love others like that. Get rid of the scorecard in your marriage. Get rid of the scorecard with the other person. It doesn't mean that you have to, you don't call people to account, but you don't live that way. You love like God loved you. You, you forgive not for their sake because they, as I said last week, they'll still be on God's hook. You let them off your hook. You basically say for your own self, I'm going to let go of this. I'm not the judge. I'll let God judge that. And I will love, even though that person deserves, doesn't deserve it. I'm going to love even when I don't feel like it. You ever, you know what that's like? Right? We all know what that's like. You feel hurt and you feel like, you, you know, um, it kind of happens in, in our lives on a pretty, at least in my life, on a somewhat consistent basis. And I go, you know what? I don't care whether I feel like it or not. I'm glad God doesn't treat me like that. Can you imagine if he only loved me when he felt like it? And so he talks about this kind of love being centered in the grace of God so that we live in this kind of way. So that we take and come together and we celebrate what God's doing. I like what Matt Chandler writes in his book. He says, um, in this book, To Live is Gain, he says, I have said for years now that church is the lamest hobby in the universe. Get a boat, go mountain climbing, ski. If you're looking for some kind of self-improvement experience, do something other than church. The church as a self-help center is a terrible thing to devote your life to. I mean, it's on Sunday morning, it's early, you have to stand a lot. This is just a lame, lame hobby. He says, is it a hobby or is it really a place where you return weekly to say, God, unbelievable, you love me, you still love me, even after how I've neglected you, treated you, dishonored you, even after I again and again have failed to love others like you call me to, don't you realize that church is not some hobby, but it is a place where we continually allow God to refocus our hearts again and again on his grace and his mercy and his love so that we can be people of grace, mercy, and love. And that's why in verses 15 and 16 he says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice. And this is something, getting up and worshiping God and coming together and worshiping is not, you get up in the morning, how many get up and go, I feel like getting dressed up and going to church. Oh, good. There's a little, see that hand of the little child back there? That. 
Don't grow out of that. No, and, and, and it, it says, it's, a, it's the fruit of the lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for, with such sacrifices God is pleased. He's saying both with what you say and how you act, what you do, should express the same grace that you've received. And then the, the, the verse 17 um, through verse 20. Honor and pray for those in spiritual authority. So he's just going through this laundry list of how you can have better family. And one of the things he talks about, you know, in the family, it's a really good thing to respect mom and dad in that sense. In the same way, in a group that you're a part of, one of the things that are as important is to honor those who are in leadership. And this is probably pastor's favorite verse. It's my, you know, it's, they love this. Because in some translations, it says obey. The New International, I think, has a better read on it. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. Unless your spiritual leaders are doctrinally off, living an immoral life, leading as a tyrant, which they may at times, give them your confidence and submit to their leadership, praying that God will move their heart and create a place of joy. Create a place of cooperation so that God can work. And then, and then Paul makes this little admission in verse 18. He says, and, and when they are off base, just recognize this, pray for them. Pray for us, he says. We are, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. He didn't say we live honorably. We really desire it. There are times it doesn't come through. And then he says, I particularly want you, if you're going to be praying, I urge you to pray that I'll be restored to you soon. And then he ends with this benediction. And so I'm going to ask all of you to stand. Because I would love to um, have this benediction prayed over you. And I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd come. Because he wants you to receive God's blessing so that you can be a blessing to others. And so these are the words of blessing. So I say it to you as a prayer that you would live this out. Now may the God who brought us peace by raising from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ so that he would be the great shepherd of his flock and by the power of the blood that sealed the eternal covenant may he work perfectly into every part of you all that you need to fulfill your destiny. And may he express to all of you that which is excellent, pleasing, and beautiful to him through your life union with Jesus and the Anointed One, who is to receive all glory forever and ever. Amen.